0: Your scripture is 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what ind- indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Good morning. I'm Heather. And, um,. Glad to have you all here. Um, yeah, it's a, I um, took a bit of a break from preaching. Nine months, to be specific. So today, getting back in the saddle. Yes! Just needed a little minute. Take a breath. Figure out if I had anything that I felt like I could say. Um, we've been in a um, series on the practices and habits that spark in us a deeper love. And you have these journals. If you don't have one, you can get one. They're on the table back there in a little tub, and they help us to work through, or there's notes, places that you can write notes, things that are going on in the community. And Practice, when you hear the word practice, usually you hear it and it's like, oh, this thing that you do over and over and over again and you improve, like the piano or sports or writing, you practice it to improve upon, upon it. And when we talk about practices and habits in relation to um, our spiritual health and our spiritual goodness, it's less about improving and more about Belonging the practices that we do and that we've been talking about lead us back to the center of our meaning. And that center for us is divine love. The love of God. And so these practices lead us back to the love of God and that is the note that we tune ourselves to over and over and over again. And so these practices bring us back. They bring us back to who we are and why we are. So again, it's not about improvement. It's about understanding who we are and why we are in relation to the love of God. And we do that individually and we also do it collectively, understand who we are and why we are. And we've talked about rest, and we've talked about play, and we've talked about prayer. And today we were going to talk about story, but um, Lydia and I swapped, which I was like, maybe that's a good thing, because today instead we're going to talk about lament. And when I said that to my friend Daniel, he's like, well, that's cheery. <laughs> so a little bit of a swapperoo. And lament is all over the Bible. Um, It's very real, and it's a consistent practice. Maybe the the most obvious place where we could see lament is in the book of Lamentations. The book is actually named Lamentations. Um, It's a set of five poems that were written by somebody who survived the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C.E. And so this person who survived the siege wrote these poems. And when you think about the siege of Jerusalem, 587, it's kind of like this fact that doesn't mean a lot. But I want you to think about a moment like 9-11 or World War II or what just happened in Afghanistan. This moment was horrendous. And this person lived through it and so subsequently wrote these poems in order to be able to express what that experience was like. And so one of the poems is depicted as the city like a widow. And she's alone without those she loves and there's no comfort for her. She's distressed. Another of the poems depicts... Um, A man, a lonely man, and he's suffering because of what he's done. And so there's a sense of regret and a plea for mercy. And in one of the poems, the final poem, it's a plea to God to remember us, to look at us in the midst of this horrible and horrendous situation. And it's honest and it's real and it's all confused, the Book of Lamentations. And at the end of the book, the, po- the poet leaves it open. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't really offer anything conclusive. It ends with uncertainty and a paradox, a bit like our everyday lives. Sometimes when we experience pain and suffering, there's not kind of a neat conclusion to it. It just leaves us in the paradox. And so we have this picture of poetry as lament. And then you have the Psalms, another big kind of book in the Bible that are songs. Songs that are sung, and they're sung in community together, similar to what we did today with Shay. And not all the songs in the Psalms are lament, but it's the biggest chunk of them are laments. So the biggest chunk of the Psalms are actually lament Psalms, individual and corporate. And again, they express anger and confusion and pain. And they draw attention to what is wrong with the world, but they also have joy in them and celebration. and so almost like this tension is held by the psalmist. Like, life is difficult and complicated and painful, and life is also good and joyful and celebratory, and somehow the psalms allow those things to be held in tension. And so these songs tell those stories, songs that are sung. And so you have these big collections in the Bible of laments that reveal that lament can be societal and collective and communal, that a nation can lament together. But you also have a lot of individual lament throughout the Bible. There's a woman called Hagar in in Genesis, and she is completely mistreated. She's used and she's slandered and then she's disregarded and there is a harshness to the treatment that happens to her and not only to her but also to her son. And so she's out in the wilderness and we find her sobbing because she doesn't know if her or her child are going to survive. And I can imagine women on the border who feel similarly. David in the Bible is the becomes one of the most powerful humans, most powerful humans. All the money, all the resource, all the power. And you find him weeping and crying often. During the moment of um, play, Johnny said, like, he danced too. There was a kind of a freedom in David, but we find him crying often. He cries over the loss of his children. He cries when his children betray him. And then he laments when he betrays himself. When he does things wrong. And when he misuses his power, there's lament that comes out of David. It's a sorrow. And then there's a woman, one of my favorite women in the whole Bible, Rizpah. Rizpah fights off birds to get a proper burial for her loved ones. Her loved ones have been killed and they've been completely dishonored. And so she stands by their bodies and she fights off birds until the one in power gives them A proper burial. This woman is grieved, but she is also defiant. And her lament is physical. Love her. And then in Job, chapter 3 of Job, it's one of the most famous individual laments. Job is um, expressing that death would feel better to him than life. I love that that is clearly this huge chapter in the Bible, that death would feel better to him than life. There's some that might resonate with that. And then Jesus laments. We know that Jesus laments. He weeps. When his friend Lazarus is dead and he weeps with his friend Mary, they weep over the death of their friend. Jesus gets angry, which is also a form of lament. He makes strips out of cord and he disrupts this whole scene in a religious area, like there's just like sounds of animals and birds flying, and he is completely being disruptive. And then he, he, he pushes the coins off the table. you can imagine the sound, and then he flips over the tables, and he tells people to stop it." That's a lament. And it's expressed through anger. And then in the garden, he's troubled and he's distressed. And when he hangs on the cross, the words that he speaks are, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question that is born out of suffering. A feeling of abandonment by God. And those are the words spoken from Jesus. Jesus. And sometimes as we read these stories, we experience them as one-dimensional. You know, you read a, these words on a, on a page. But those moments are highly animated in the lives of these humans. It's animated by sounds and music and smell and years and years passing sometimes, holding the same questions And all of these things are happening in the course of their everyday lives. Which is why I think this practice is applicable for our everyday lives. It gives us a way to express deep emotion, sorrow and grief and anger and regret. It gives us a way to voice confusion and dissonance and tension. And it's often unresolved. It creates space for uncertainty. Especially uncertainty in the presence of pain and injustice. And it's a way of expressing that not everything is right. It's a form of protest. So then the question that we ask ourselves is, well, how then does that spark deeper love? How does this kind of practice spark a deeper love for God or for myself or for others? And I think when we come to talking about God, it's easy to be prescriptive here. That God wants a certain kind of faith out of lament. And I read that a couple of times as I was preparing for this, and I find that frustrating. Because often lament have questions directed towards God. Questions like, where are you and what is all of this, and why are you not doing something about it? That's the consistent language of lament related to God. And we all experience pain and injustice. There's a universality to it. We can't escape it. But there are some whose pain is chronic and systemic. And it has lasted and lasts years and years and years. And those questions hang in the air a long, long time. and the narrative of the bible communicates us to us that it's more than okay to come to god with questions and those kinds of questions and if we believe in god we believe that god is the power is on god's side in moments like this and loving power doesn't get fragile or defensive when we come honestly But in our own experiences, often power and authority doesn't respond well when we come with honesty or with anger or with grief or with protest. And so it would make sense for some of us to find it difficult to come to God with certain things. That makes sense when our experiences with power tell us not to do so, that it's too costly to do so. But other, others of us find peace and presence and comfort in coming to God with these kinds of questions, and that's good. And sometimes it's both. There's a difficulty and an uncertainty, but in the desperation we find ourselves coming to God anyway maybe without even really knowing why. And part of the coming is knowing or even naming what it is that we would be coming with. And lament offers us a kind of honesty that's good for us. We can get into the habit of not pretending or hiding or distracting, and sometimes we do that with hope. We don't have to pretend or hide or distract. There's an invitation, a permission to come with some of the deepest things that we wrestle with. There's a gentleman called Padraig O'Tuma, and he's worked in conflict resolution for a long time in Ireland. And he refers to this naming or knowing as just a saying hello to here. And he quotes a poem and he says, in that he says, stand still. Wherever you are is called here. And he goes on to say that we must stand still and feel our bodies on the ground where we are in order to learn wisdom. And that is not an easy wisdom. I am... I've always wanted children, I really like little humans, and um, growing up, I never really like imagined myself married, but I always like thought about what it would be like to be pregnant, because that's epic, and also harrowing, right? I will turn 44 this year, and I went to a women's wellness center last year, you know, because Make sure everything's all right. And both the doctor and the midwife told me that at 43 and beyond, you have a 3% chance of achieving pregnancy without intervention. I'm not opposed to intervention at all. I think it can be very, very, very beneficial and good and right. But they also said to me that it is clear that the complications with those like there's complications anyway when you have intervention, but they're like, the complications just increase as you get older. So the complications increase as my age gets over. over, 3% chance. It's not a lot. And when they told me that, it's like I had to stand there in that truth. Say hello to it. I will likely not be pregnant. To tell myself, like, I've arrived 44. I've arrived here. And I think that there's a fear that if we name something, we give power to it. or that it's gonna consume us. And those fears are valid. But often the fear is more powerful than the actual truth. Hello to here. Hello to that truth, right? It's there anyway. (laughs) The 3% doesn't change if I deny it or ignore it. The truth is here anyway. Might as well say hello to it. And in naming it, it also doesn't name ourselves. We're more than our laments. They're part of us, but we're more than them. It doesn't erase the other parts of us that are playful and delighted and fun. Those things can coexist. And in naming our own laments, it doesn't have to eclipse other people. My here doesn't eclipse your there if you have children or if you are pregnant or if you hope to be pregnant. My here doesn't have to eclipse the joy of that, the delight of that, the absolute beauty of that. We're just simply in different locations. And we're likely to be in different locations, in different places and times of our lives, or even in the same day. Sadness here, and now all of a sudden I just can't stop laughing. Patrick puts it this way. Instead of resenting another's words of gladness or pain, it may be possible to hear it as another's location. They are there, and I am here. At another point, we will be in different locations, and everybody will pass by many locations in their life. The pain is only deepened when the location is resented, or even worse, unnamed. Hello to here. So I have a question for you. To greeting to the truth of what is. What is the place, what is the name for the place where you are now? It requires some dedication and commitment to truth. Just say hello to the name of here. And knowing the name of the place we are moves us closer to ourselves. We don't have to hide or pretend or rally. And it also helps us to communicate to other people, to God, and to others if we wish to. It doesn't have to be spoken to everyone and like I did this morning. No. You could just choose to reveal where you are or your hello to one or two trusted people. It helps us to communicate to others, to be connected to others when we're able to name where we are. And there's also some collective hellos that we have to be honest about. That's true of the Lamentations and the Psalms. And so there may be a collective here of a neighborhood, or a collective here of a city, or a collective here of a nation, a country. It may be that we've participated in wrongdoing, and our lament, like David, invites us to regret and sorrow and change. That's what that should happen for things like racism. There should be collective lament over that, that leads to sorrow and change. That's a collective hello to what is as a nation. There could also be a a collective here of the voice that says we've been wronged and we say no more. That can also be a collective voice and a way of lamenting. An individual and collective lament helps us know what to speak to God and others and also how to listen to one another. How to be with each other. Which is why the practice of lament is so important because it can spark a deeper love in us. It's a practice that connects us. Patrick goes on and he, and he has a little story that I'm going to read. He talks, I'll read it. Years ago, my friend Paul was employed as a youth worker. In Ireland, they have youth workers that go into schools and do all of ki- kinds of things with the youth in the neighborhoods. Truth be told, he didn't fit the mold of a youth worker, If a 10-year-old asked him how he was, he was liable to say, oh, not so great, I'm sad about my divorce. The other youth workers were aghast at this truthfulness. Once, at a gathering of young, young people, Paul was asked to talk about friendship. There were 30 children there, as calm as a nest of mice, all energy and kicking heels against plastic chairs. Paul started to talk about friendships. And then he said that he was lonely, even though he had lots of friends. He said he missed his wife. He cried. The children listened. I don't know why it makes me laugh, but it does. He did that thing where you, you try to stop sobbing by gulping down air. <laughs> Everything was quiet. It was awkward and truthful and both inappropriate the boss swooped in, started a game, a song, got all those quiet small bodies up and racing, right? I was there too, a trainee youth worker. I think I was a bit in love with Paul. There was an ache in my chest as I looked at him, standing in the corner now, busying himself with tidying things up. The next day, Paul told me that the least controllable of all the children, the child we complained about after every event came up to him in the very tidy corner, held his hand and said, I cry when I'm sad too. Standing hand in hand, we not only stand with each other in sadness, but all kinds of other things too. Disappointment and regret. We stand with each other in outrage. We're with each other in silence. The judge of the Ardman Aubrey case, before sentencing, asked the court to sit in silence for one minute. To represent a fraction of the time that Arbury was running for his life. That silence was held as lament. And the Corinthian passage that Amanda read and that you have in your spark journals talks about this kind of sadness and what it produces. It produces enthusiasm and indignation and purpose and concern and justice. Which is why we need the practice of lament. Because it has the capacity to spark deeper love in us because it brings us back to each other. As we sit with others in silence and we let them sit with us. As we hold the hands of others in their grief and their despair and we let them hold ours. When we stand with people who are outraged and we know how to be with them in their anger, and we let others stand with us, and we're with them in theirs, we get a sense of ourselves. And we also get a sense of God as a place of belonging and as a place of love. Because pain... And suffering, whether it's things that have been done to us or circumstances that we find ourselves in or as a result of our poor, auction, poor actions, does the opposite. It dislocates us. It disowns us. We exclude others. We exclude ourselves. It does the opposite of bringing together in love. And lament, lament can bring us back. And so what does the practice look like? It looks like all kinds of things. I have a picture behind. That's a lament in our city. It's a visual lament. I had a woman whose fiancee died suddenly and she made pies. I met with her for a year and every time she came to see me, she'd bring a pie or a baked good. Part of her lament was in cooking and baking and being in the process and processing while she was doing so. A couple of years ago, Megan danced here for us. She did a dance that was um, choreographed, you can go to the next image, by Rebecca, who's sitting in front of her. And the dance was... um, Through movement was her expressing the pain of her deserts and how the pain of her deserts expanded her heart. Dance is a form of lament. Silence, as we said, can be a lament. There's a reason that there's a rage room downtown, right? Just smash some things, right? Maybe that's the form of lament that you're really needing at the moment. On Ash Wednesday, Steph Finley is going to lead us through a corporate lament. So there are all kinds of things can be expressions. Look out for it. Look out for the lament. Let it connect you. Let it connect you to yourself. Let it connect you to other people. And let it connect you to God. Ultimately, let it spark in you a deeper love. Because that's its purpose. That it would spark in us. Deeper love. Let's pray. God, you are the most thoughtful. That you would give us permission and space to to name the things that are with us, the truths that are with us whether that's the truth of where we are individually or the truth of where we are collectively and that those truths don't have to exclude or disown or disregard ourselves or others, but instead they have the capacity to bring us back to who we are and why we are. And so I pray that um, we would be a people that learn this language of lament It doesn't have to be done in words. It can be done in pies and paintings and dances and silence. And so, Spirit, let there be a creative imagination in us for the way this practice can show up and does show up in our everyday lives. And I pray that it would expand and root us in what is true of you and true of us. Love and lovedness. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.